Thanks, John. Uh, keep your Bibles open there. We like to go second level around here. So that was the Apostle John writing about John the Baptist. And Peter, the son of John, read to you by John, the Rose Holman student. So um, try to keep those clear, if you could, for me. Uh, but we're going to be in John 1 this morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, just for your love and your graciousness, graciousness to us always, God. And as we uh, just stop now um, and just pause at the start of this, Lord, we just invite uh, your presence. We invite you to speak because this is your word. These are your people. God, this is your church. Uh, everything revolves around you. And so I pray that, that you would be just the center of our focus during this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for as long as man has existed, we have consistently and progressively underestimated God. And how we do this is we've come to him with expectations, we've come to him with demands, we've come to him with things that we want him to do and to fix and accomplish and give us, and then we get mad or disappointed when he doesn't do what we want him to do. And we see it all along as if somehow God isn't doing enough for us, and the ironic thing is that, that all along is what we wanted wasn't enough. Because he's always up to bringing us more than we're looking for. Right? We ask him for a bite of food and he neglects to give us that because he's, he's preparing for us an endless feast. Only we don't have the patience to see the feast come to fruition because we're so upset that he didn't give us the bite of food we asked for. We're going to see this play out all throughout the book of John. And you already, you've already seen glimpses of this. A couple weeks ago we read John 1.11 that says that Jesus came to his own but his own did not receive him. Now his own were the people of Israel and they did not receive him because what they wanted from Jesus was so much less than what he wanted to give them. Right? What they wanted was they wanted the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome and to set up Israel as the dominant nation on earth. And they would live the rest of their lives in prosperity and security, which all sounds nice until you realize this, that a life lived in prosperity and security still ends in death. Right? It doesn't matter how rich, how safe, how comfortable you are, you're still going to die. Right? So what Jesus came to do was to make a way for them to have eternal life, to make it possible for them to live forever. And they were so upset that, that he didn't do what they wanted him to do that they missed out on what he was doing. And they're not the only ones. Right? Too often we find ourselves disappointed in or angry at or even pull away completely from God because he didn't do what we wanted him to do. And what he was up to, what he was preparing us for was something far greater than what we were asking for. You see, the glory of God is the centerpiece of the universe. It's all about him. It all started with him. It all revolves around him. It's all his. And so when we posture ourselves as if we can come to him with expectations and demands, then we've got it all backwards. He doesn't owe us any explanations, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have to give us, he doesn't give audience to anything that we put before him. The fact that he loves us and is working for his good is already grace. He's already done more and will do more than we deserve. So when we put our expectations on him, we've simply forgotten who he is and who we are. We don't get to tell him to do anything. Instead, John is going to lift up this idea throughout his whole book, this idea of receiving. When we receive from God. We're not ordering him. We're not demanding him to meet our expectations. We're just receiving what he wants to give us. This, of course, takes faith. This takes humility. This takes trust uh, in who he is and takes believing that he will always work for your good, even if you don't understand at the time, because there will be times that he's up to something that you're not aware of. That's going to happen in your life a lot. But I want you to know something this morning. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ, his ultimate goals for you are not a complete mystery. They're not. What he, what he ultimately wants to do in you has been revealed in Jesus Christ. 
It would be helpful, right? Very helpful to understand what God wants to do in us and for us, wouldn't it? It'd be important so that we wouldn't repeat the same mistakes that the Jewish people made by, by rejecting him for not doing what we wanted when he's planning so much more. It'd be important to know what, what God's actual plans and intentions are for us in Jesus Christ so that we don't get led astray when people come along and try to tell us things that God wants to do for us that aren't really goals that God has in mind. You see a lot of mystery of this, right? A lot of the mystery of this is taken away here in the verses that John read for you this morning. A lot of John 1 purposely points back to the Old Testament, right? To show that the Jesus story didn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem, but as God, he has existed for all time. So last week, we looked at a discussion between John the Baptist and some members of the religious elite of Israel. And it was an interrogation, basically, as they were trying to figure out who this John the Baptist was. And John the Baptist just refused to talk about himself, right? But he kept telling them that there was one coming who was so much greater than he was. He kept telling them that that Jesus was among them, that Jesus was near, that he was right there. And then John was just preparing them for his arrival. And in John chapter 1 verse 29, we're told the very next day after this interrogation occurs that John sees Jesus and he makes a declaration. So look again in John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I want you to know this title is not by accident. Because it can seem a little strange at first that Jesus is referred to as a lamb. And if you don't understand what I mean by that, just think of what we've been told about Jesus so far in the book of John. We're being told that, that Jesus is God, that he has always existed, that everything exists, exists because he created it. We're told that, that no darkness, no matter how powerful, can ever overcome him. We're told that he has the power to make human beings uh, uh, children of God who live forever if they believe in him. We're told that he's so great and glorious that this John the Baptist, whom thousands were coming out to hear him preach, wasn't even worthy of touching his sandals. See, at no point in those descriptions am I picturing a soft little lamb. Maybe that's just me, but that's, just how, that's not what crossed my mind. But you see, to all who are in the audience of John the Baptist... This title, Lamb of God, would immediately pull up a file. It would carry weight. Because one of the things the Israelites got right, they got a lot wrong, okay? But one of the things they got right was they passed down the Old Testament scriptures from generation to generation. Because on top of being their guide spiritually, the scriptures contained the history of their people. And so any Israelite with the smallest spiritual interest would know all the stories and the themes of the Old Testament well. And this title, Lamb of God, would, would immediately register with them. This past summer, we did a series called Jesus in the Old Testament. We looked at stories in the Old Testament and discovered how they ultimately point us to Jesus Christ. And one such story we looked at was located in Genesis 22, when Abraham is given a very difficult assignment by God. And the background of it is that Abraham had been called out by God with this unique calling that God told him that even though he and his wife had had no children, that he would become the father of a great nation, which would eventually be the Israelites. And sure enough, when he was 100 and his wife was 90, they had a miracle birth of a son. And this son named Isaac was the hope of God's promise. Right? Because for a great nation to form out of his descendants, then logically we can all deduce that Abraham has to at least have one son with his wife to continue the family line. So all of the future hopes of God promises rested on Isaac. Everything relied on him. Which is why it was so confusing that in Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to him. And on the way to the mountain, Isaac begins looking around and he starts piecing things together. And he asks his father a pointed question. He says, I, I see everything we need for the, for the altar, for the offering. I see the fire. I, I see the wood. I see everything. Where, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Right? 
Well, as we looked at, God stops Abraham from sacrificing a son and then provides a lamb for it. But the rest of the Old Testament could be summed up with that one question. Where's the lamb? Because the Jewish nation was constantly looking for the Messiah. And the symbolism didn't stop there. Later when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and Pharaoh was refusing to let them go, there was an awful night in Egypt. Right, when the final plague, this angel of death, was going to pass over Egypt and kill the firstborn son in every house. And so God warns his people that, that they, that night they were to kill what, they, what was called as a Passover lamb. And they were to eat that lamb that night, but the blood of the lamb was to be put on the door frames of their houses. And if they had the blood of the lamb on their house, then when the angel passed by, he passed over them and they were saved from death. From that night on, right up to John 1, right? From that night, every year, they, to commemorate God saving them, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. And during the celebration of the Passover, they would sacrifice the lamb. And this was repeated year after year after year to remind the Israelites of God's faithfulness when he saved them because of the blood of the lamb. And according to the book of Hebrews, this was also repeated year after year because these lambs were just insufficient to forgive sins forever. In fact, Hebrews says... The entire system of sacrifice in the Old Testament kept having to be repeated because it never fully forgave the sins of anyone permanently. But you see, the animals used in those sacrifices were just animals. When John sees Jesus, he makes two powerful distinctions. Once he says that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Right, this next level, this means that this lamb, this, this man has come from God, he is God, and so he's purer and holier and mightier and more awesome than any lamb that came before. And the second distinction that John made was that Jesus was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because all the lambs in the Old Testament were sacrificed to cover the sins of a few people or just the people of Israel. But Jesus, John says, has come to take away the sins of the entire world. And listen, if you want to know if you really want to know what God wants to do for you and wants to do in your life, it always, always, always starts right here. It never starts anywhere else. It starts right here. He sent his son, Jesus, to take away your sins. You see, you were created to connect with God in ways more deep and intimately than you imagine. You were created for a relationship with God. He's, Ecclesiastes says he's actually set eternity in your heart because he's eternal. But the number one thing standing between you and God is your sin. And this doesn't make you worse than anyone else. It makes you just like everyone else. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. And the problem with that is this, that God is perfect and he is holy. And therefore, he simply cannot abide sinners. He simply can't be in his presence. So our sin, which is any time that we do our own thing, any time we go against God, any time that we act selfish or prideful or put ourselves above God or other people, this sin that we have creates this gap between us and God, and we cannot cross that gap. We can't become who we created to come. We cannot fulfill our purpose for existence, and it's not for lack of trying. I mean, just study human history. We, we formed endless religions. We are experts at justifying our failures and sins. We, we convince ourselves that, that we just do enough good things, we're going to fill that gap. And so we go to church or we pray a little. We try to clean up our lives. We try to be fair and nice to others, which are all really good things, but they don't close the gap. And we're just as separated from God as we were before. And this separation is not inconvenient. It's deadly. Because the longer and longer and longer that we're separated from God, the more and more and more our soul dies because our soul was designed to connect with God. And the longer you go without that connection, the more and more you lose hope and the more and more you get lost in yourself. And as sad as that is, 
it's nothing compared to what will happen in eternity because any soul that was separated from God here will remain separated from God for all eternity in hell. And that is our sin problem. And it's a huge one. It's massive. And you must know that God loves you too much for him to just leave it as that. So he sent Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away your sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect, pure, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And so when Jesus, who being God had never sinned, when he died on that cross, he did so to pay the price, not for any of his sins, because there were none, but to pay the price for your sins and the sins of the world. Here's how 2 Corinthians 5 puts it. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's a good trade. Okay, this is what Jesus, the Lamb of God, did. That's what John was saying when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. That when Jesus Christ died in your place, he did so that, so that if you receive him, if you trust in him and ask him to forgive you, right, he takes all your sin and he puts it on himself, and then he gives you the righteousness of God. Which means that even though you're not perfect, right, even though you've made a mess of things, even though you've, no matter how bad you've let it get, when you receive Christ, God sees you as perfect because Jesus is perfect and that's what he did for you. And now that you are perfect and spotless, you're able to have a relationship with the God who created you. And now his spirit can take up presence inside of you. And you will live forever in his presence in heaven, a place where sin doesn't exist. And therefore pain and illness and sorrow and death don't exist. And any who are there won't be there because they were awesome or they were good or they did anything. They will all be there because Jesus did it all and they simply received it by faith. But you've got to receive it. Listen, you just, you cannot begin to understand what God wants to do for you without first understanding that. The very first thing that God wants to do in your life is erase your sin and reconcile you to himself. And by the way, that should be enough, right? I mean, if that was it, right, then, then that alone makes him worthy of our praise. That alone makes him worthy of, of any amount of devotion or service or gratitude that we have forever. If he never answered another one of your prayers, if he never moved in your life again, if he never gave you one single thing again, he'd still be worthy of your praise. But the amazing thing about our God is that what Jesus did for us on the cross, as, as amazing as it is, it's just the beginning of what God wants to do for you. The day after John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, we get to see this process start to unfold. We're told in verse 36 that, that John sees Jesus again and again, just he sounds like a broken record. He repeats the same title, what he said the day before. He says, look, the Lamb of God. But this time when he says it, something happens. Right? You see, John the Baptist was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And being so, he had disciples. And these disciples were student followers. Right? They, they sat under teachers. They traveled with them. They followed them around. They learned from them. And apparently two of these guys have been listening. Right? Because when John says for the second day in a row that Jesus is the Lamb of God, they're gone. Right? They've heard John teach again and again and again. There's one coming after me who was before me. There's one coming after me who's greater than me. And so when Jesus is called by John, the Lamb of God, two days in a row, they're like, it's been real, John, but we're out. Right? If that's the one you've been talking about, that's the one you've been teaching about, we're going with him, which isn't rude, by the way. It isn't wrong. It's right. It's what John would have wanted. And in verse 38, we see the very first words that Jesus utters in the entire book of John. John 1, verse 38 Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? I said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. Not exactly groundbreaking stuff, right? You know, you, th you think Jesus' first words would be a little bit more epic than that, but you see, at first glance, what happens is we don't see the grace in this exchange. But here's what you're going to uncover in John. 
Not too far in this book, you're going to learn this about Jesus. He knows what everyone wants. He knows what everybody's thinking. Even if they don't say it, he knows things about people that they don't know about themselves. So even in asking them this question, he's extending them grace. He's bringing them into the conversation. He's letting them declare their intentions. And the question they ask, I'm going to be honest, seems like nothing. Because what it seems like, just at first read, okay, it seems like they've been told that Jesus is the one whom everyone has been waiting for. And he is the Messiah. He's, he's from God. He's the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. And their question is like, uh, can we see your house? Or is it a tent you're staying in? What, like, what, what's your lodging situation like? Right? But this is one of those times where the language is a barrier here. Because what happened was John wrote this book in Greek. And the Greek word that we translated staying here, when they asked, where are you staying, is a word that is quite meaningful to John. Let me unpack that for you. But this particular word is used 112 times in the New Testament. Okay, John didn't write the majority of the New Testament. But more than half of the times this, this word is used in the Bible, it's written by John. 66 of them. So it's clear to say that this is a theme that he's trying to build throughout this gospel. Only it has very little to do with a house or a tent. Because later when this word is used, it will be translated for us in English as to continue, to remain, to abide. And so the idea is this. What John wanted is that when we get to John 15, and Jesus looks at his disciples and he tells them, remain in me and I will remain in you. He wants your brains to go back to John chapter 1. As these first disciples wanted to know, where, where are you abiding, Lord, so we can abide with you? This wasn't, they weren't asking for floor plans. They were asking, can we come and remain with you? And Jesus' response is, come, come on, come on see. Why don't you come and hear from me? Why don't, you, why don't you come and listen to me? Why don't you come and learn my purpose? Come and get to know me. This is meant to show a progression that will build throughout the book. It's a progression that will build throughout your life if you're a follower of Christ. Where first, someone's got to tell you who Jesus is. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, then that means someone finally opened their mouth, right? Someone opened their mouth and told you that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who can take away your sins. And then as God reveals himself to us, our curiosity is piqued. And we begin to research and ask questions and search the word. And what we find is we find Jesus to be gracious and inviting. Come and see, he tells us. Come and see that there simply isn't anyone like me. Come and see that no one came for you, but I did. Right? Come and see that nobody died in your place, but I did. Come and see that no one has defeated death for you, but I did. And as we see, eventually, eventually what happens is we ask to remain. Eventually we ask him to abide with us. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, asking him to forgive us and just to simply take over. And in that moment, right, the Bible says that our sins are forgiven, our slate is wiped clean forever, and God's presence comes and lives in us, and we have a whole new life in Jesus. And the story doesn't end there. Look at verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah that is the Christ and he brought him to Jesus. Right? I want to close our time today by looking at Andrew and Peter. Right? We're going to get to Peter in a second. But in both of their stories, I want us to find, each of us to find our story. Because one thing I want you to know is that Andrew is not mentioned a lot in the Bible. Okay, he's not one of the famous disciples, right? He doesn't go on to write any of the books in the New Testament. We don't get a record of any one of his sermons and acts, right? But every single time you find Andrew in the Bible, he's doing one thing and one thing only. He's bringing someone else to Jesus. And John didn't forget this, okay? So when he wrote his book, he made sure to point it out. 
Right here in John 1, Andrew goes and grabs his brother Simon and brings him to Jesus. In John 6, Andrew is the one who brings the little boy with five loaves of bread and two fish to Jesus, which he uses to feed miraculously 5,000 people. In John 12, we're told there's a group of Greeks and foreigners who are curious about Jesus and asking questions. And so Andrew brings them right to Jesus. And the ironic thing in all this, right, is that Andrew's brother Simon is the one who will be renamed Peter here by Jesus. And Peter's going to go on to get all the headlines. It's going to be Peter, not Andrew, who's brought into that inner circle of three disciples that Jesus invested in most. It's going to be Peter, not Andrew, who gives the sermon in Acts that starts the church where thousands of people are saved. It's going to be Peter, not Andrew, who's seen as the rock upon which the church is built. It's going to be Peter, not Andrew, who writes the books in the New Testament. And Peter will get all the buzz, he'll get all the story, he'll get all the fame, he'll get all the celebrity, he'll get all the highlights. And none of it, none of it would have been possible had Andrew not brought him to Jesus. And I simply pointed out to tell you this, to tell you that God has different plans for each of his followers, and he doesn't distinguish between them. See, Jesus didn't value his plans for Peter more than he valued his plans for Andrew. He didn't see Peter as more important than Andrew. He just had different ways of using them. And what happens is way too often, right, far too often, Christians who want to serve God want to be more like Peter than Andrew. When we... When things go good, man, we'd like some credit now and then. Things are pretty positive. It'd be nice to get some encouragement, right? When, when, When it's more fun, it's more exciting to serve in a way that's seen and heard. But just be honest this morning, right? Which would excite you more, telling your brother about Jesus or preaching to a crowd of thousands? I think if you take stage fright out of it, all of us would answer the seconds just more exciting. But God doesn't differentiate between the two at all. Because he demands all of it. He uses all of it. And I'm going to tell you now, every single time there's a, spe- there's a Peter speaking to thousands, there are countless Andrews behind the scenes who've made that possible. So here's my point. Ask God to form in your heart a desire to be Andrew. We should all start by wanting to be Andrew. We should all be people who just, without fanfare or celebration or pats on the back, are simply just to be content to bring people to Jesus. And in the process of living in that way and serving humbly in that way, if God decides to use you in more public ways, then praise God, that's his choice. Number two, serve in those public ways just like Andrew. Just, Just bring people to Jesus like you always have. And number three, don't ever believe that your public ministry is more important than your private one. Because Jesus Christ demands it all, he uses it all, he deserves it all, and he's honored by it all. The pastor this morning speaking to 15,000 people on multiple campuses is going to be used by God in the exact same way that he uses the Sunday school teacher who had two kids in their class today. If they're faithful to point people to Jesus, he doesn't differentiate. So be an Andrew and let Jesus decide how to use you. Now, when Andrew brings his brother Jesus, we get to see the next phase of what God wants to do for you. And at first, it doesn't look like much, but the ramifications are endless. So look with me again at verse 42 so we don't miss this. John 1, verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So Simon meets Jesus for the first time. And Jesus does this weird thing of just, you know what, I'm going to rename you. Would that be interesting? Like, imagine if you came up to me today, like, hey, we haven't met before, I'm Andrew. Yeah, I'm going to call you Billy, right? You're Simon, you're, you're son of John. That's, good job, John, you gave your son a name, but I'm going to give you a new name. And Simon is who you are, but guess what? Peter is who you're going to be. 
You see, naming somebody is a very important thing, right? Now when people have a kid, they buy these books that have 10,000 baby names in it, and, and, and the man and woman will try to settle on the one they like, the one that sounds the coolest or carries the most meaning to them, and it's an important process. But man, back in, back in Jesus' day, especially in Jewish culture, it was even more important because names carried with them stories. They named their children back then based on who you were, who you came from. They often told a story about you. And so to change somebody's name is a huge deal. Right? I want you to know, it's not just that Jesus liked Peter better than Simon. It's, it's not even how they would be said in Aramaic anyways. It's that Peter or Cephas in Greek, that word means the rock. And elsewhere in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus said that on that rock, through Peter, Jesus would establish and build his church. You see, when this occurs in John 1, no one else knew what Jesus was up to. But he knew what he meant. And here's what he meant. Here's what he meant. Simon, son of John, is a fisherman. Simon wasn't only lost in his sins, but he had plans and directions and goals for Simon's life, right? Simon had shortcomings in his character. He had, he had flaws in his soul. Simon was brash and aggressive and full of confidence in himself. But Peter? Man, Peter was a fisher of men. Peter's sins were covered by the blood of Jesus. Peter would not live out his days on the waters at all. Peter would pour out his life for the kingdom of God by building the church everywhere he went. Peter was still brash and aggressive, but his confidence was transferred from believing in himself to believing and trusting in Jesus fully, and it will make all the difference in the world. You see, Jesus' intentions for Simon were never to just forgive his sins and leave it at that. Jesus' intentions for you are never to just simply forgive you and, and give you some sort of golden ticket to heaven and just leave it at that. No, he has plans and intentions and goals for you, and they are both awesome and also things that you would never choose yourself. C.S. Lewis is writing in his book uh, called Mere Christianity, and, and he quoted this, and we're going to put it on the screens for you so you can follow along. Uh, here's how he puts this process. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof. You, you knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But then presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting it on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. Listen, here's what you can learn for certain from this interaction between Jesus and Peter. When Jesus looks at you this morning, he doesn't just see who you are right now. He sees who you're going to become in him. And he has grand plans for you. He has things for you that you never thought possible. He'll bring things along your way that you could have never achieved in yourself. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 tells us that the good work that Jesus began in you, he himself is going to see it through to completion. In Revelation chapter 2, 11, we're told that, that we'll all be given a new name by Jesus. All followers of his will be given a new name that will carry on for all eternity. And for each of us, it will be unique and special and awesome and tailored exactly to what Jesus wants to build in us. But here's the thing with all of this, right? It all sounds good, but man, it's not easy. Right? It sounds really good that, that Jesus just wants to forgive your sins and give you eternal life. It sounds good that he's got all these awesome plans for you and wants to change who you are completely. But listen, left to yourself, you're going to be your own worst enemy. Left to yourself, you're going to fight against this every step of the way. You're going to fight against both of these. Because to experience both 
What is required is we must humbly receive. See, to be forgiven, to have our sins wiped clean, we must admit that we need it. We must admit that we're not the answer, right? That we needed Jesus to die for us, that we're willing to stop being our God and just let him serve that role. On top of that, to go from Simon to Peter, it's going to take some humbling admissions. The first is that we must realize that some of his work is going to hurt. If he's going to go about making us into an entirely new creation, making us look more and more and more like him is what we're told in Colossians, then all that work won't be done with ease and success. When we think about it, he calls himself the potter and us the clay. If that's the case, he has to break us, he has to press us, he has to shape us and form us. Sometimes that hurts. And so when the difficult times come, we must hold to the truth that he's up to more than we ever asked for. You see, because comfort and riches and health and prosperity and ease, those are pathetic substitutes for what, to what Jesus is building for us. Never take that trade. You must always realize that Jesus simply isn't impressed by the plans you have for yourself. That's a hard one for people. All right, listen, if he didn't write your dreams, then he feels no obligation to work within them. Are you aware of that? Because trusting him with your future means no longer trusting in yourself, no longer clinging to your plans, no longer holding God to meet any kind of standard that you set. And there was a, there was a church sign of all things, right, that it said this, don't forget to water your dreams today. Man, throw your dreams away. Right, submit to the one who wants to give you a new name and a new future and a new identity who's making you into a new creation. Following Christ is not getting your sins forgiven, passing, going, collecting $200 and going on and building your own life. Following Christ is submitting into the process of going from Simon to Peter. Following Christ is the surrendering of your plans. It's the surrendering of your retirement. It's the surrendering of your future. It's obliterating and burning all your backup options in following Jesus and Jesus alone. That where he leads, you will follow. Which means this. It's simpler than we make it out to be. You are faithful where he has you now. And whenever he chooses to reveal the next step for you, you receive it and you follow. I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but I don't care. You are a terrible steward of your own future. You're not a good God. So stop trying to be one. But you belong to the one who wants to give you a new name. You belong to the one who will finish the work he began in you. And what he wants to do in you and through you is both bigger than you've ever asked and bigger than you've ever grasped and bigger than you've ever imagined and is bigger than just you. And so I want to close this out by asking each of you this question. Because here's, here's where we make it personal. Where are you in this process? I mean, really, just name it for yourself. Where are you? Are you still lost in your sins? Have, have you never been forgiven because you've never given your life to Jesus and therefore you're still separated from God, from the God who created you? You still haven't discovered your purpose for existence. You still have a void in your life that hasn't been fulfilled. If that's you, man, to today receive Jesus. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. It's just the biggest decision you've ever made. So make the right one. Submit. Give your life to him. Ask him to forgive you. Do that today. And here, when we're done here, we're going to take communion. Here's what I'm offering to you. If, you. if that's you and you don't know what that looks like, I'm going to be sitting right there in the front row. Where everybody else is coming up to this table, you just walk up and talk to me. We'll be happy to show you what this looks like. How about that? Have you done that, right? But that's pretty much the essence of it. 
So as you sit there today, you're, like, you're appreciating the forgiveness and grace of God, but, but you're still a slave to your own dreams and your own plans? Or you still have that, that, those nagging sins that are just wrecking your life and have too much control over you? The call's the same. Just receive Jesus. It's the same process. Right? Ask him to remove those sins from your life, to take them out. Ask him to do what you cannot do. Ask him to rebuild you. Man, maybe there are those in this room who just need to repent of the idol of control. You've asked Jesus to forgive you, but, but you're not a follower. Because you've got your, life, or you've got your life mapped out. you got it. You've got it on the paper, right? You, you've, you've, you called all the shots. You have the dreams that you want to fulfill, so you trust no one but you to do it. Listen, don't miss out on what Jesus Christ has you by settling on what you want for you. That's a terrible trade. Today, receive Jesus. Today, turn over the keys. Lay down your life before him. Ask him to forgive you of trying to be your own God and just trust him completely with your future. He's always up to more than we know. And so the wisest thing to do in response to that is let's just stay out of his way and receive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus here to come and pay the price for our sins and to take those away from us. God, we thank you that you also sent him here to give us new names and new futures and new identities and new purposes in you. And so God, I pray for those who, who are still lost in their sins this morning, who've never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, that t- today would be the day that they would, they would come up, they would talk, they would talk to somebody who invited them, that they would search your word and just surrender in this moment. They just give you control and ask you to forgive them. And God, for the rest of us who've done that, but we're, we're in this in-between process where you're trying to take us from Simon to Peter, and, and we like the plans you have for us, but, but we kind of like our own plans as well. We like your calls to righteousness, but we kind of like our sin as well. And so we have this constant struggle where you, you have these great intentions for us and we just keep getting in the way. God, I pray that as we come to this table this morning, as we remember the sacrifice that you made on, on our behalf, that we would not just come and receive elements, we would come and receive Jesus. We'd lay down our need to be in control. We'd lay down those habitual sins that are destroying our lives. We'd lay them openly at the cross of Jesus. In repentance and in humility. That we'd invite you to literally have your way in us. God, we ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.